yeah, that, you know, it's a really, really terrible thing that they may have done, but does that nullify their existence as a human being? Does that um, take away all of their humanity? Are they irredeemable? Are they not worthy of uh, being heard or even engaging with on any level anymore? And do we just lock them in a cage and forget about them forever? My name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. Hey friends, how's it going? It's Leo WT here, back with another episode of Conversations of a super interesting friend that I have just made um, coming to us to talk on the podcast today about them and their work and the change that they hope to affect in the world. So I'm really excited to get this started. But before we do, I just want to remind everybody that Conversations exist to come together regularly and intentionally to have spiritually minded conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everybody's voice is welcome in the conversation. Moreover, everybody's voice is sought as a part of the conversation. You are welcome, you belong, and nothing is out of bounds because we are just here with the best of intentions to have conversations that can help shape us and the world around us to be better every day. Thank you for joining us, and I'm going to turn it over to my friend here and let them introduce themselves. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Casper Saunders. I am the director and co-founder of AVO Comics, which is an abolitionist publishing company dedicated to amplifying the voices of incarcerated LGBTQ people through artistic expression, which is my gigantic long word spiel of what we do. Um, But in essence, we just work in solidarity with people um, who are incarcerated, uh, people who identify as queer, transgender, HIV positive or allied, and our work is just to help them publish their creative, you know, creative projects to help uh, raise a little bit of money for their commissaries so that they can, you know, buy food and gender affirming items and art supplies and whatever that they, you know, might need access to. Um, we also do a ton of advocacy work on behalf of our contributors. So we help people file grievances. We help people access medical care. Um, I'm on the phone with wardens almost all day, every day, which is super fun for me. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, we do a ton of other stuff also. So right now we're working on trying to set up arts coordinators um, positions so that we can sell the artwork of our contributors and help also of course raise some money for them. We're putting together artist feature pages on our website right now. Uh, This week is super out of control busy because we're working on an art show. We're about to move our headquarters to a different area of the building, working on a ton of grant funding. Um, So it's just I'm, I'm super excited about this week. I'm down in coffee like mad uh, and we're trying to rock it out. <laughs> I love that. I, I think that you tend to work at the pace I do, which is just like absolute insanity and then one notch above. That's kind of how I function. Um, it's kind of a quintessentially Leo move to just commit to everything all at once. So, Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> right there with you. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. So there's there's so much to unpack and to talk about and to dive into, like just within what you've said so far. But would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself, uh, how you became who you are and what led you to the work that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, what led me to this point in my life? Oh, that's a, that's a hard question. Right. Um, that's its yeah. own podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, Well, like we were talking about right before this uh, recording started, I also empathize very much with like your life story because I feel that's very similar to my own where, you know, in high school, I went through the conglomeration of identities where, you know, I was like, am I a lesbian? No, that doesn't feel quite right. Uh, Non-binary? Sort of. Uh, Trans guy? Yeah, kind of like, you know, feeling out the identity spectrum there. So I've been medically transitioning now for five years. Uh, I've been on hormones. I've had top surgery. Um, I identify 
kind of like as a, you know, I go back and forth, trans guy, non-binary sort of. Yeah, <laughs> um, I feel that. <laughs> and yeah, it's kind of, it's like, it's hard to put your identity into a box, you know, sometimes it just feels different day to day. But um, yeah, and at this point in my life, I think I am sort of walking on a new sort of spiritual journey. Um, I'm rediscovering that part of my identity. I was raised... Um, I was raised loosely Christian, okay. uh, not, I, I didn't even go to church every day or anything like that or every weekend, um, but I did go to a uh, Christian after school daycare program when I was okay. in elementary school. Um, and so that was sort of part of my upbringing. And then somewhere kind of along the way when I was um, discovering my queerness, we'll call it, I kind of lost that part of my faith. Um, and now I'm kind of rediscovering it a little bit and now I'm in my thirties and it's starting to feel, you know, like more of an awakening for me. Um, one of my really good friends who is incarcerated that I've been learning from, she's, uh, she's a Lakota elder and she's been teaching me a little bit about her culture, um, and you know, her spirituality. And so I've been really interested in learning that from her and then how that kind of intersects with the things that I have learned, um, growing up and just really excited to kind of explore all the new pathways of all the things that I definitely don't know. Yeah, that's so awesome. There's, I feel like we have so much to learn from like our native brothers and sisters and on, on so many levels. Um, and even the term brothers and sisters itself falls short if we want to talk about native spirituality. So, um, but I, that, I live um, in a town which is like the only town in the United States that uh, that you know completely overlaps with a, a reservation. Uh, so I live by uh, Salamanca, New York, and basically what that means is the entirety of Salamanca is is on situated on a reservation, and it's you know even greater than that area. But it creates this really interesting like microcosm of sociology and stuff. Uh, and so I've had the privilege of learning by proxy there. So I definitely resonate with that idea of kind of like wow, this like this exists in it and it predates Christianity and it predates Westernism. And you know what I mean? There's there's so much there to learn from. And so I like that that's kind of a path that you're going along as well. So very cool. So how did you get to be this little like they be that then decided like I'm going to work in the field of like abolition and, you know, like solidarity with those who are experiencing incarceration and such? Yeah, um, I... It's been a really long process. Um, when I was in high school, I was kind of super introverted. I was the kid who sit in the back left-hand corner of the classroom, just trying to pretend I didn't exist, you know, hoping nobody noticed me. Um, so in doing that, I was doing just a ton of writing. That was sort of my my like happy place is I would just sit and I would write novels that would never be published or I'd just write out letters to people that I wished I could talk to but you know was too nervous to um and I started pen palling with people when I was in high school so I found a couple different pen pal sites and I started sending letters to people out on different you know different areas of the world and most of the people I was writing with were kind of like you know, in their 60s, knitting with a ton of cats, and we didn't have a whole lot in common. So, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, it was fun getting to know, you know, people's life stories and stuff from other parts of the world, but it wasn't really like forming, you know, connections with my community and stuff. So um, I found at this time, I was 16 or 17, I found this website called writeaprisoner.com. And this was prior to to, I think like the start of Black and Pink and other organizations that link up um, pen pals with incarcerated people. It's pretty much like the only website I could find um, geared towards this sort of thing. And on their website, there was only one other person listed um, who said that they were LGBT. And so I took a chance and I was like, okay, we're roughly the same age. Um, this person was like 19-ish um, at the time. And so I sent them a letter and I was like, hey, this is kind of the first time I'm doing this. I feel really awkward, like, but I just thought I would reach out and see, you know, like tell you a little bit about myself, uh, see what happens. Um, and they sent me back a letter and we've been writing now for 12 years, I think. Wow. And she's one of my closest friends in the entire world. Um, 
when I started writing her, her pen pal profile listed her as a gay cis boy. And over, um, I don't know, maybe five years after we started writing, we both, you know, were talking a lot about trans stuff. And she was like, I think I'm trans. And I was like, I think I'm trans. And so um, we ended up actually transitioning at the same time. I had to like petition the Department of Criminal Justice in Texas at the time to help her start hormones. And we were roughly on the same timeline um, for that. And so, you know, we've just been corresponding for so long. She started introducing me to some of her friends in prison and I started writing with them as well. Um, A lot of them were artists. So they were sending really awesome pieces of artwork my way. Mm -hmm. And I was just collecting giant stacks of artwork that at one point I was kind of like shoving underneath my bed because I just didn't have anywhere else to put them. Right, right. And, um, you know, after sort of just writing with so many people and doing prisoner advocacy kind of work for almost a decade, um, I was talking with a couple of my friends who are uh, big comic book nerds, and they thought it'd be a cool idea to ask uh, my artist friends on the inside if they'd want to do like some sort of comic anthology. And everyone was super down, super on board for it. So we... um, asked them to send in some comic submissions for us. And we also took out a call for submissions ad in the Black and Pink newspaper Mm. that circulates to, I I, I probably will get this number wrong, but I think it's over 20,000 LGBT people in prison. And um, I kind of thought like, oh, we'll probably get, you know, three or four people to send in a comic to us. And that was not the case at all. We got like hundreds of letters. Wow, (laughs) that's so cool. Yeah, and uh, just so many submissions, so many people were really excited about it. So um, our first anthology ended up being, I think, about 25 um, currently incarcerated people who sent us work. And now we're in our fourth year. We just published the fourth anthology, and that one has over 50 people in it. Um, wow. We did an anthology last year, too, called Confined Before COVID-19, which is about people's experiences, of course, with COVID-19 in prison. And that one has, I think, 50-ish people in it as well. Um, our mailing list is over 250 people now who pretty regularly write with us. Um it's just growing kind of by the day and snowballing out of control. Wow. That's, that's so cool. I feel like a lot of times the coolest shit happens when you just like are passionate about something, you know what I mean? Like no one could have sat down and been like, let me think of like this cool, super cool, unique idea. But it just like kind of was an outcropping of, you know, your friendship with your friend and then your, you know, the standpoint as an artist and as a queer person. And then like out of those things comes like the coolest shit. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. I think it's always kind of just happy accidents, you know, where it's like, as long as you, you take an opportunity when it comes your way, you never know really what's going to come of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, there's a quote and I want to say, man, I want to say it's St. Augustine, which like, I'm not really a big fan of Augustine right now. Cause like I'm reading some early church history that makes that dude seem like not so great, but there's a quote uh, that says like the glory of God is man fully alive or something. And, and that, that really, really spoke to me when I was younger, because I, as a person, I'm all about being passionate and, and helping others find their passion. And so I think really like a seat of the lot of the best things is just like when you chase your passions, because we are all so diverse and so unique that if we all do what we are all passionate about, every base will get covered. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's sort of, um, you know, I've had a couple conversations with people recently who want to start up creative projects and stuff. And they're like, oh, gosh, I have so many ideas. I don't know where to start. I'm like, well, just, you know, figure out what you're most excited about, what like brings a smile to your face when you think about doing it, because that's what's going to propel you into sort of the longevity longevity of this work because it's very easy to burn out you know if you're not if you don't love it if you're not super passionate about it if it doesn't make you happy to do even when you're stressed out and want to like tear your hair out yeah 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 you know you're not going to stick with it Absolutely. Oh my goodness. It's so funny. You, you mentioned that because I, I'm recalling the podcast that I heard you on originally when you were talking about like, you know, just eventually like making enough money to eat and stuff like that, you know, like the real struggles, the foundational struggles of like working at a nonprofit, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, definitely. It's not, it's not lucrative. <laughs> no, 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 no. And you know, what's funny is like, this is the type of the work that would really actually change the world if we like, if we funded it. And yet they're like, yeah, no, let's fund some tanks and shit. <laughs> I mean, I'll take a tank. That sounds fun to me. <laughs> can I, can I drive that, that to that my nonprofit job? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Great. Can I drive it through a prison? maybe. Right. That, that is getting to the hunger some abolition shit right there. So, so um, <laughs> as far as ABO comics goes, is it kind of like you and then a bunch of volunteers or how do you guys function? Yeah. Um, when it started, it was myself and two of my friends, um, Io and Woof. Um, and they, when, when I, know, I think like, kind of got priced out of the Io like Io that has yeah, that, like a pod uh, TED talk or whatever on gender. Oh no, no, oh, I don't okay. think so. I think okay. that's probably Io. All right, just check. If I was doing a TED talk, that's bad, but <laughs> I don't think so. Um, yeah, just uh, two of my awesome uh, like queer Bay Area friends. Um, one who got kind of priced out of the Bay Area and, and had to move away, and then one who's also you know teaching and kind of didn't have the capacity for stuff. Um, and so then, you know, in year two, it was really just me for a while. I was just sort of operating out of my apartment for a long time. Uh, stacks and stacks of letters just piling up and uh, my workspace was just out of control. Um, and by year three, I was like, I can't do, I need to separate this from my home life a little bit. Because, um, it was just so intense. It was the only thing I was thinking about all the time. And I was also working like two other jobs and um, it was just so like, it, it was becoming too stressful. Like it was becoming not so much, you know, a fun, awesome project I was loving anymore. It was starting to become like overtaking my life. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, but I love this more than pretty much anything that I've ever done. So I ended up quitting everything else and then investing kind of everything into turning this into my full-time gig. And so now I'm sitting in um, the AVO headquarters office. Uh, we're surrounded by beautiful art that's on the walls. And um, I actually just ended up renting a bigger space that's upstairs from this one, which is multiple rooms. And so we're gonna start the process of moving everything up there very soon when I can find a spare minute. That's awesome. That's super exciting. I can only imagine like the amount of gaps that you're filling for, you know, like our queer brothers and sisters that are incarcerated because the criminal justice system, well, there's a difference between the criminal justice system and the prison system, right? But, but like the process from start to finish is so flawed and so... It's not even bare bones, man. It's just ineffective and inefficient that um, I feel like these kind of a higher level concerns like art and, you know, and, and self-actualization and mental health are not even on the top of the list because we're not even talking about being able to get basic like healthcare needs met, you know. So I can only imagine how much it must feel like water on super dry ground uh, to have your presence, you know, ABO's presence in somebody's life when they are incarcerated. I, I can't even imagine. Uh, I, I, I think it's mutually beneficial to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like people have taught me so much about myself and about, you know, running a quote business or a nonprofit. They teach me things about life and love and, um, you know, just have brought so much insight and joy to my life that it's, I couldn't imagine at this point doing anything other than this because I get to learn something new every single day and I get, you know, incredible, incredible, beautiful art um, that I, you know, every time I go to a museum, I just want to like touch everything. Right, right. All the paintings and like, <laughs> and then, you know, I get this art and I'm like, yes, I yeah. get to look at it and I get to see it up close. Um, and it's really, really incredible. And then at the same time, you know, I, I get the the privilege of um, getting to assist people a little bit in making their environments a, a bit brighter, um, a bit safer, a bit happier. Um, it's it's been really cool just to kind of see the impact um, on both ends. You know, see the impact of. Uh, people being able to share their stories with others and then people hearing those stories and learning from them and, and 
you know, being inspired to create positive change. Yeah, man, that's so cool. And I love something that I heard. I'm really passionate about like this idea of and I, if you take it, I, I swear I'll cut your fingers off. But um, <laughs> I'm really passionate this about this idea of the thing behind the thing. So it's like we're usually we're talking about this, but really it's it's that, you know what I mean? Um, and the, the example that I've been using to explain that is, you know, the, the like trans in sport debate that's been happening. And the thing that people always throw out is like, well, I want my daughter to be able to get a scholarship. Okay, so you're making trans people the target of this argument, but what you're actually worried about is the fucking crazy cost of college. So that's my analogy, right? And so I, I set out and I was thinking like, let's talk about like the work that you do within populations that are incarcerated. And you're like, no, first let me talk about the work that they do in my own life. And I think that's a cool <laughs> ideological switch. And I'm not sure if you noticed that that happened or not, but I definitely just noticed that because um, you, in the way you phrased it, like you set that out as like, listen, you, you think you're helping these people, but they're helping me so much more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, that was a fun kind of switch in my brain over a long period of time too, because I think when I got started in prisoner advocacy work, of course it started with pen palling, but then it kind of just came from, I was getting so many requests for assistance mm -hmm. in just every realm, like people writing about really just horrific things that are happening inside the prison system and being right. like, Oh God, what can I do to help? Like how, how could I possibly help change this massive overwhelming system that, you know, at times, like you said, it feels like, you know, a couple drops in a, in a just vast you know, desert. Um, and that was kind of my mentality when I started it. It was like, okay, I'm just going to chip away at the system and see if I can help a little bit. And then over time, it just ended up transforming my own life and helping me out in so many ways and helping me grow, you know, emotionally and spiritually and just as a person, um, especially getting to interact with people from all different areas of the country, all different walks of life. Um, people have had all different upbringings and experiences and getting to know them sort of like intimately through our friendship. Um, so I've gotten, you know, what's been so fun for me is I was, I have grown up in California. It's kind of an insulated bubble. Um, and there's really like, especially up here in Oakland, which I love our community so much, but it's very, it's a, it's a narrow kind of bubble of ideological thinking. Um, and so you kind of get in that and you, you, you form that worldview, right? Where, and then you kind of, project that like, okay, well, I have this worldview. Everybody else probably has this worldview because I've been insulated in it for so long. Right, right. And Surely then, everyone um, thinks like this. Yes, yes. And then you start talking with people, you know, who are incarcerated, like trans women who are incarcerated in like Texas men's facilities or something, and they have different upbringings. Like they grew up around Confederate flags and they grew up um, in that sort of school system and have different perspectives and um, just sort of learning the differences and then also having like heated kind of intense conversations through letter writing or like, I'm going to tell you what I think. And they're like, well, I'm going to tell you what I think. And then, you know, at the end we're like, okay, well, I still love you. And even if we disagree on this, you know, it's, you're still super rad. I'm so glad to have you in my life. And it's helped um, just help me learn about different perspectives. It's helped me learn my own biases and my own, um, you know, the, all of the things that I learned that maybe were not correct or that I was, you know, straw manning or pigeonholing people based on what I thought they thought, but not what they actually think. Um, so that's been an incredible opportunity for me. That's so cool. I feel like um, I was doing like another interview uh, earlier this morning, which makes me sound really gangster, but really I just <laughs> said yes, because I'm I'm doing a research project for school uh, uh, coming up. And so I was like, well, I have to say yes to my friends now. You know what I mean? But I was uh, drawing an analogy between, you know, like the world of art and, you know, people, right? And sociology. And so the idea I was talking about is that like colors, right? Colors, because I'm a colorist, like that's what I do. Um, when I'm not doing this uh, until I can do this full time. That's what I do. Uh, so, but like in terms of color, right? The way that you make the best hair colors is you place colors next to each other that are not opposite, 
but complementary. And I think that ideological switch in my brain, it just clicked today, right? Because the way that I become a better person is by placing myself next to someone who I am, I am complementary to, and they are complementary to me. Because I was using that language of opposite, but that is a statement that bears with it an idea of a power structure or a power dynamic, right? But if we're complementary colors, we are different. And we are different as we are as far apart on the color wheel as we can be, but but in being next to each other, we're both made brighter, right? And I think that's the coolest idea when we begin to engage with diverse people is we get this chance to see mutual like growth from it, you know? Yeah, I, I really love that analogy. I, it just um, like I, came out of my mouth this morning. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of good. Bookmark that one. <laughs> yeah, right. You need to write that one down. Put that in right. a book. <laughs> right, exactly. I keep saying that like I'm just actually conversations is just like me verbally processing the content of whatever book I write in the future. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's good. so tell me something now let's talk about, you know, we've, we've been talking so much about, uh, you know, the, the, the macro kind of idea of what you've learned, but, but can you tell me an area, a specific area where you're like, you learned something directly from an incarcerated person that you were in communication with, like just something that it could be little, it could be huge. It could be little, seem little, but is actually huge, but just something that you learned where you're like, oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, there, there are things, I mean, there are so many things that I've learned over the years where it's every single day is kind of a new learning experience. Um, something that like always, every time I think about it, it, it just, it overwhelms my brain and it kind of shuts it down. And this is something I learned pretty recently after doing, you know, over a decade of, of work with the prison system, um, is how horrific, it is for people who are going through mental health issues um, in prison because prisons are notoriously short-staffed. Um, they're staffed by people who generally don't have a vested interest in, um, in actually helping the people who are incarcerated because most people are just kind of warehoused. It's just sort of like the daily day, you know, the, the, I guess, revolving door of like, well, this person's, if they even do get out of prison, they're probably just going to come right back. So like, why even, you know, make attempts to help better their lives or help better themselves. And so something that, you know, I learned pretty recently that was very shocking for me was um, when people are going through any sort of mental health issues, uh, like a lot of our friends, um, have like psychoses in prison and if they're going through episodes um the prison will kind of try to weed out people who are quote faking it um from people who are actually going through like a, a breakdown or something like that so what they'll do is they'll um and this i heard about this in, in texas facilities from from multiple people what they'll do is they'll strip the person down naked and they'll throw them in an empty cold room where the temperature is actually lowered um quite immensely and then they'll just kind of try to break the person so if the person's not actually suffering a mental breakdown they'll be so uncomfortable that they're like this isn't even work worth it like fuck it I'll just go you know I'll just go back um and they'll just be like okay I'm fine totally cool um but if they're actually suffering like a really bad breakdown and they don't have you know sort of the verbal tools to to be like I this is horrific and I need help then they just kind of suffer in that cell until they finally come out of it um and they're not offered any sort of resources, any counseling. A lot of times people don't get the medication, like the proper dosage of the medication that they need, or their medication is switched up based on what is the cheapest at the time. So people are constantly cycling through different medications. Um, it's just, it's a really, really horrible system for people who are, uh, you know, dealing with those sorts of issues in prison. That's horrifying. Uh, yeah, that was one of the most more like, uh, I don't know, one of the more shocking things because I knew that healthcare is terrible. Right. The prison system, it's, it's kind of terrible out here too. Right. Um, <laughs> We're not really racking up the points in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I didn't realize 
quite this, the lengths they would go through mm -hmm. to make sure that a person doesn't have access to healthcare. That's crazy. And it's like, okay, so they're not, maybe they're not in on having a psychotic episode, but let's push them to the point of psychological torture. So maybe they do have a psychotic episode because you know how many people, like how many people probably entered that, that, you know, were faking it, which I tend to think is like a lower number anyways, than is purported. Right. Um, but like how many people were pushed to that point because of that kind of treatment? I mean, that's not, that's not rehabilitation. Like, let's stop calling it rehabilitation and start calling it warehousing people because that's not rehabilitative in nature at all. Right. Yeah, I, I think our prison system is more focused on sort of retribution and warehousing than it mm. is um, trying to help people, you know, maybe people who have made mistakes help them come to terms with that, help them learn and grow from those mistakes um, and then become the better versions of themselves so that then when they come home to their communities, you know, they, um, they have, you know, the self-motivation, they have the tools, they have the skill sets to, to come back and, and be, you know, integral parts of our communities again. Instead, it's sort of like people are essentially being tortured within the prison system, or at the very least, they just kind of have years to sit with the thoughts of their mistakes and kind of brood and, uh, perhaps grow bitter and resentful and angry. And um, then, you know, it's it's no shock that when you release somebody who's just feeling so negative back, um, back into uh, our communities with no resources, a lot of times, no, you know, no, no money, nowhere to live. I mean, Part of the parole system is that you have to have those things in place a lot yeah. of the times yep. but many people you know don't have a whole lot of like family or friend support on the outside um you know finding a job with a with a felony record is next to impossible for yeah, most people absolutely. um and then it's just kind of like you know people make one mistake uh they violate parole even just you know, very minimally, um, because there's not a whole lot of opportunities. And then they're right back in the prison system again. It's so crazy. I think what you said at the beginning of that, like that last this last little segment really, really caught my uh, ear, which was that it's not about it's not about rehabilitation. I mean, we've known it's not about rehabilitation because you'd have to be dumb to know it's not about rehabilitation. You'd be real dumb. But um, but the the uh, like ideological uh, switch that you flipped in my brain was that it's not only is it not about rehabilitation, it is about retribution. And that's, that's absolute insanity because it's not fair because we make systems that stick people in impossible situations on the daily. And most frequently, they are people that are already previously marginalized. So we make the system that makes them have to choose between a rock and a hard place. And then we punish them for choosing the one that we don't think they should choose. And then we send them to a system. That is that is like not even a rock in a hard place. It's like a hard place in a hard place. And then they're supposed to somehow come out and, and not do the same thing. Like that's that that is actually like psychotic behavior. If you like anthropomorphize like the criminal justice system, that is one crazy bitch that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And, um, you know, it's it's not to minimize the impact that anybody's actions may have had on another person. Absolutely. People have, of course, made really horrible mistakes that have impacted the lives of many other people in their communities yeah. and everybody has to grapple with that like Absolutely. then the people have to of course you know pick up the pieces on their own a lot of time with no help from our own justice system a lot of victims are uh you know they don't, they don't have any say in any of it it's mm -hmm. sort of the law takes um takes it out of their hands and then decides what the proper uh accountability is and then it's just like well you're on your own after that yeah. um but also it's, you know, it, we probably should have better conflict resolution than what oh we Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> you know, on both ends, it's horrific because you put, you put the victim through like reliving a whole bunch of things in a trial. And then you also put the person who may have harmed them through public shaming, yeah. um, you know, the names in newspapers and then a public trial where uh, then they're, you know, sentenced and, and incarcerated for often years at a time and only left with 
the guilt and shame and no path forward to, um, I guess, kind of redemption, you know, where we all, I think, I really believe in a person's ability to progress and change and learn from their mistakes. And I think we should all have that opportunity to do that, no matter what mistakes we may have made in our path, in our, in our past. Um, And it's just being taken, taken to such an extreme that there's no healing for the person who was the victim of a crime. And there's no healing for the person who may have been the perpetrator of it. Um, and not to even, you know, mention all of the people who really are, are incarcerated on false terms or were coerced into pleading guilty when they weren't. And, you know, it's just such a clusterfuck nightmare what we are currently have. That is so incredibly true because if you look at all of those factors and you combine them, the percentage of people that are there because they should be that are unrepentant and you know, I mean like add all those factors together, the percentage of people that are there because they should be that are unrepentant and and that really do need to be like cloistered away from society. That number is so small so small compared to the number of people we got in there right and that's just absolute insanity to me and like the thing is too the other i think the other insidious thing that happens with with the you know the prison system is that all of a sudden like though everybody's cut off from the reality of what's happening inside right and i think maybe perhaps that's the 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 thread that you pull on that is so important is a breaking down of the binary system that plays out in terms of a free and incarcerated you know mm-hmm. i think that's a huge I think I I would see that as a huge function, like whether or not like that's an explicit intent of your work. It would seem to me that that would be at the very least uh, an important byproduct of what you're doing is is breaking down a binary system that that is keeping everything the status quo, you know? Yeah. And I I think as humans, we're we're hardwired to see patterns. Um, It's it makes a lot of sense that we want to we want to have like a little checklist uh, with boxes, mm-hmm. you know, where we want to, we want to put like, okay, this person, race, gender, sexuality, criminal, not criminal, mm-hmm. you know, religion, whatever. It makes sense that we want to categorize people in that, in those ways, because it's, it's easy. We're pattern seekers. Right. Absolutely. But the world doesn't exist in black and white. It's, you know, um, things are very nuanced, very complicated. And um, we need to start, treating people I think more on an individual level than just putting them again in a small little box and then writing them off and saying well that's the end all be all that's all you'll ever be um there's no room for you to grow or learn or do better um that's it you fucked up and you know and then we're done we're done we're done with you we're done yeah and it's like well what level of responsibility do we want to take in making our own world better um because it's very easy to just say like, okay, you messed up. This is 100% your fault. We're going to throw you in a cage for the next couple of years. And then we'll, you know, and then we don't have to deal with you anymore where it's like, well, if we get to know our neighbors, um, if we engage in our community, if we take some level of responsibility for not the actions of others, but for, you know, being in each other's lives and making sure that they have a support system and that they have, they can come to you if they need you, you know, they have somebody that they can come to um, in an emergency or in a crisis or in just to have somebody to lean on, you know? Um, and that kind of ties back to like the spirituality thing a little bit because for, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, we had very close knit communities. Um, and, uh, you know, through like technological advancement for all of the incredible things that's done, it's kind of separated us in a lot of ways. It's brought us closer in some ways and separated us in a lot of ways. Like I, you know, up and when I was living up here, I didn't know when I first moved up here, I didn't know my neighbors. Um, I didn't take the time to go over to them and, and learn their names and, you know, be like, hey, let's have a barbecue in the backyard and let's, you know, become friends so that, you know, we can grow our community and kind of have people to rely on. Um, and that's something that, you know, churches were, were very integral in for a super, super long time is just not only the religious spirituality element but the community element and now um you know it's like 
so many of us just don't know each other anymore or take the time to get to know each other. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that um, there's a forthcoming thesis or paper or book or something on the topic of like our inability to think critically and to engage in critical dialogue as a society. And I think you can see that really play out when you talk about like societies move from like a tribal and communal um, thing, which, by the way, in those settings, there were no police. Like if we just want to drop boop that little nugget, right, like, there was no police. Boop. Anyways, but we've moved away from that setting of a society to a really uh, separated and disjointed society where we can't engage in critical conversation with others around us because we don't have a rapport that supports that critical conversation. And so in that lack of critical thought and in that lack of connection, you can see the systemic fractures. You can see exactly how we got to a point where our civil discourse is in the shitter like it is right now because we don't have that connection. We don't have rapport. And so really, if you're talking in models of, of spirituality and religion and what you're doing, I don't see an altogether huge difference because um, you know, at my core, I'm a community builder. My community looks different than the community I grew up in, but that's what I'm doing. And what you're doing is building a community. And it, it might be on, on one side of the glass and on the other, but you're essentially seeking to intentionally build community, especially. And what's the coolest about what you're doing is that you're seeking to build a community with people that the rest of the world is like, pass you know what i mean you're like no i think like there's there's something here there's a real a real human that i'm writing to with real thoughts and real feelings and they might be stuck in this setting but they still have a real life that happens you know it's still a real they go through a million thoughts every day even though those thoughts happen within those same four walls mm -hmm. yeah it's it's exactly that um you know people who have been quote, written off and, and discarded. And a lot of our folks, um, when they receive a letter back from us, they've written that like, oh, you're the first outside person I've talked to in, you know, 15 years. Like maybe it's the first visit that they've had since they've been incarcerated. It's the first like connection outside of people who are in prison with them and, you know, guards that they've had in a really long time. And having that sort of connection outside of the walls, because that becomes people's entire world, you know, that's all that they see. Um, and it be can become really like disassociating when you're, you exist in this like microcosm of just brick and what to do and when to do it all day every day it starts to form an association in your brain or this is what I've been told at least for some folks that like the outside world is just kind of like this nebulous artificial unreal place and so to have that you know kind of connection on that walls brings it sort of back to reality and gives people like okay wait I have something to strive for because I want to go back to that you know um, I want to work on on becoming the best version of myself that I can be and work towards getting back out into that world. And, um, you know, having, having people that they can connect with, that they can write with that, you know, um, are like, you know, I'll be here for you when you get out and we'll do the best that we can together. Um, I think that that has been really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, and it, it would seem to me that that's a two-way street to circle back to what you were saying in the beginning is I think sometimes like in our cloistered worlds of like queer culture, this happens in queer culture all the time where like it's this like um, kind of pseudo like overly intellectual like, well, we are queer, so we are you better um, because you're just limited in your mindset, you poor heterosexual cisgendered person or whatever, or it happens in academia where you, you get inside that bubble. So the bubble in, in, in the way I'm speaking, the bubble is in prison, but it's still an ideological bubble. And so by also dialoguing with people um, who are incarcerated, we're coming out of our own bubbles as well um, with, because we have to integrate their experiences into our reality. And in that way, it begins to heal some of the systemic fracturing that I think that we have, you know, that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago in our world in general, right? Like you are healing this systemic fractured uh, fracture because like, yo, this exists. Like you might not see it because it's behind a wall, but it is absolutely as much a part of our modern day reality as me going to, you know, Starbucks and getting a coffee is right. It's, it's all equally present and equally relevant. We just 
aren't seeing it from our perspective. And so in much the same way, like, you know, my experience or my understanding of prison is nebulous, um, as is someone who's been incarcerated or in the correction system, especially if you look at people who are engaged really young, you know, their understanding of my life is good is going to be as nebulous as my understanding of their life unless we talk to each other, you know. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think, especially with just the political dis discourse of our current climate, there's so much, I guess, a fear of talking to people you perceive to kind of be the enemy or like the baddie, you know, um, like the the oppressor. Um, there, there's this the fear and anger um, of just even engaging with people that you that you perceive to be on the wrong, you know, um, and you know, I've, I've had people ask me, like, wh why, why do you give a platform to, like, murderers and rapists and all of these terrible people who have done these terrible things? And that's something that I've had to grapple with a whole lot is, like, am I giving them a unjustified platform or am I talking to them as a human being who has made, you know, in some, some, uh, sense this a uh, really horrific mistake that has had a horrible, horrible impact on people's lives. Um, yeah, that, you know, it's a really, really terrible thing that they may have done, but does that nullify their existence as a human being? Does that um, take away all of their humanity? Are they irredeemable? Are they not worthy of uh, being heard or even engaging with on any level anymore? And do we just lock them in a cage and forget about them forever? Um, you know, that it's been, it's been a interesting dynamic um, trying to, to learn, you know, where, where healthy boundaries are, where, um, you know, what's quote justified and what's not. Um, I think there's such an emphasis right now on deplatforming people for any and every little thing. And uh, instead of like, you know, I, I'm a strong proponent in the belief that like, if you engage in conversation with people, you're going to find common ground and you're gonna help each other learn and grow. And if you just kind of write people off and discard them as irredeemable, then we just create this system of like hostility and anger and hatred of each other. And that just further divides us. Um, and somebody I'm, I'm like fascinated by right now um, that I'm actually working on a comic with one of our contributors about, um, his name is Daryl Davis. And uh, he's a um, musician, he's like a blues and jazz and boogie woogie musician. Um, and he, I think started in like the seventies and played with just a whole bunch of really incredible people. Um, in various different genres of bands. Um, he's a keyboard player or a piano player. And um, he was performing in the South with a country band. Um, and he was the only black person in the band and the only black person actually in the bar. And um, somebody came up to him afterwards after they played and said like, oh my God, I've never seen a black man play like that. Well, that was incredible. And he was like, kind of uncomfortable laughing like okay you know uh whatever <laughs> cool um and then they got to talking um this man bought Daryl a drink and uh after a while the man revealed he was part of the KKK like he had a he had a clan membership card that he showed Daryl and um they got to talking about this and the central question that Daryl had always had was like, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And after talking with this man for, um, I think a couple months, like they, they formed a friendship, you know, like this member of the Ku Klux Klan formed a friendship with this black musician. And he ended up leaving the Klan just from getting to know a black person in real life and realizing that his stereotypes were incorrect um, and that the things that he thought he knew were so wrong, getting to know this man and developing a friendship with him. And so then Daryl kind of started up this I don't know, project experiment of talking to people in the KKK. And over time, he got hundreds of clan members to leave. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, like by putting himself literally, like he went to clan rallies and talked to people face to face and then helped them realize that their, like their prejudices and their stereotypes about black people were incorrect. Uh, just from like showing them a little bit of like, like actually listening to them and hearing their perspective and then being like, that's not, you know, that's not quite right and here's why. Um, so he's kind of like one of my heroes right now and has really shown me just the impact that having a conversation with somebody, especially somebody that you disagree with, um, can truly have on the world. Like he's planning on starting up a museum because he's collected hundreds of clan robes and paraphernalia and hoods and stuff from people who he now considers like really good friends of his um, who have learned and grown and changed uh, just because they were exposed to something they were never exposed to before. Um, and his name has been dragged through the mud. You know, he's been canceled. He's been deplatformed. He's been called a white supremacist. He's been called, you know, like basically you, you're, you're converting with the, or you're, what is the word? You're, oh, like you're associating with the, with the enemy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So his name has just been completely dragged through the mud and he's been associated with the most evil um, <laughs> that you could possibly, you know, could be. And um, I just, it, the entire story is so interesting to me because people are generally... I think inclined to just sort of write off and discard those that they disagree with instead yeah. of really engage with them and learn from them. Yeah, that's such a, that's such a, it's so interesting that you brought up that idea of deplatforming because I just made a video, it was this past Sunday with my friend, uh, no, two Sundays ago with my friend Justin, um, we talked about cancel culture and like, is it beneficial? Is it not beneficial? Why are the parameters? Like, wh what do we keep? What do we throw out of it? And I think uh, you are pointing out much of the same thing that we ended up circling around to in that video, which is the idea that like, you cannot just throw people away. You cannot. Like, there is going to be a percentage of people, there is going to be a percentage of people who are unrepentant, like, psychopaths like or sociopaths right there's going to be like that 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 is that is real life but what is not real life is that everybody who murders somebody is a cold-blooded killer that's not real life and when you throw away people right like which i think i think our prison system does that we throw away people we disappear people right we are the equivalent of the parent that's like i can't deal with you right now you know what i mean like it take too much energy to deal with you um it it latent in that idea is the idea of who is redeemable and what is redeemable and then latent in that idea is who decides who is redeemable and who isn't redeemable and so you have a lot of co-occurring like really big really overarching value um, decisions being made and they all play down to that lowest level of like, are we let, are we canceling this prisoner or are we letting them yeah. be a human who has the potential to evolve and to grow and to change? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I had this conversation actually um, with one of our volunteers the other day and it was really like, I don't know, something went off in my brain a little bit like a light bulb, you know, went off in my brain. Um, where it was this idea of abolition, of course, um, which is what a lot of us are are aiming in the direction of. Um, and in order to have an achievable version of abolition, we have to have very, very strong communities, very strong community ties. And something that like clicked for me is the largest white supremacist gang in the world is in the US penitentiary system. Um, so you have thousands and thousands of white supremacist leaders and gangs um, in prison. And so if we're aiming towards abolition, then we have to aim towards making our communities strong and safe. And that means engaging with people that we would typically um, deem as, I don't know the correct word, but maybe evil, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, if you have abolition, a lot of people are not proponents of abolition overnight. You know, it's building infrastructure and building communities and all of that stuff. But a lot of people are in proponents of just getting rid of prisons completely and then kind of dealing with it afterwards, dealing with the aftermath. And if you release the largest white supremacist gang in the world onto the streets overnight, like, what do you think's gonna happen? Like, <laughs> you know? Um, 
So we need to like actually figure out these solutions. We need to actually engage with people and help change their mindset. Um, and I think the best way to do that is through conversations with them because there's this idea that we can just squash it out. You know, if we, if we tell people they're wrong and they're evil and they're horrible, then that's going to change their opinions, but that's not human psychology, right? Like the more you do that, the more they just kind of dig their heels in and go, well, you're, the, you're wrong. You're stupid. Like, but you know, so. <laughs> No, that's really interesting because you are you, in so many ways you are uh, you are a conversation facilitator with what you're doing and you're modeling the change that the world needs to see. So like good on you. Not sure if you were doing that, but if you knew you were doing that, but but it's so true like we need the world to be full of more conversation facilitators and relationship builders especially and or maybe primarily with people who, you know, we struggle to label as, as redeemable, right? Um, man, there's a lot of like, yeah, that's all go hunt. There's a lot in that that I'm going to be processing all night for sure. But there's, there's so much there in terms of power dynamics and how we handle people and how we attach value or remove value from. Um, and yet, with all that being said, so much of what we're talking about and what I'm just musing to myself about is accomplished when you write a fucking letter to somebody who's different than you and you listen to the letter they write back. Like that's the beginning of such pro like profound change in our world. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> I'm having this like moment of like intellectual and spiritual synergy as we're talking and it's like, really, really, it, that's a lot, man. <laughs> so um, I've taken up a substantial amount of your time, but it's been incredibly valuable to me as a person. So I just, I'll, I'll let you off the hook, but um, not before I ask you two more questions. The first okay. is going to be theoretical. The second is going to be tangible. So we'll go with the theoretical one first. If there's one thing that you could say the people who are watching this video, right? About you, about your work with queer prisoners, about abolition, about belief, any of it. Like if there's, if you could leave us with one thing or one, you know, grouping of things, I won't tie you to just one. Like I'm not going to cut your mic or anything, but is there anything that you'd like to say to us in conclusion? Sure. Um, I'd say so much of our world right now seems to be focused around fear and um, just like apprehension of engaging with people. I think a lot of people are kind of walking on eggshells right now. They're scared of saying the wrong thing. They're scared of offending people. Um, and they're also scared of engaging with people that they have differences of opinion with. Um, I know for myself, like I get, I get kind of freaked out talking to new people because I don't know anymore where the line of like, where, where the line is, you know? Um, and it makes me scared to kind of engage with people and, and tell people my real feelings and my real opinions. So I'd say I, I would love if we could build towards a world where there is less fear of each other. Um, I think right now we're, with all the, I think people's intentions are really good, but we're just creating an atmosphere of like fear and hostility. And so like really just, you know, take the time to actually have a conversation with somebody that you may disagree with on something, on anything, like have that actual conversation about the things that you disagree with about them, because I think you're going to find that you actually come to an understanding and a middle ground and that maybe what you thought you disagreed with on them, you actually don't really disagree. It might just be a complete misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so much of this is just that we are having fundamental misunderstandings with each other mm -hmm. that we're then turning into, um, well, hatred, yeah. you know? Um, and, you know, nothing really comes, nothing good really comes from, hating another person 
And so I just say, you know, take the time to like talk to, especially like your loved ones, you know, there's this huge movement towards being like, well, if you disagree with your loved ones at Thanksgiving, then don't even, you know, don't even go to Thanksgiving anymore. Don't, don't go to Christmas anymore. Just disengage with them completely. And um, that's just isolating us all into tiny little boxes of fear and hatred. And, um, you know, really take the time to like, get to know new people and have those sorts of deep meaningful conversations and also you know get off social media it's terrible for you it's rotting your brain <laughs> right and i think in that statement too is there's room there is room for for us to disagree on some stuff uh, i always yeah. think about this like i have a friend who's uh my local who's my alderman in my town so my direct is a representative on the city council and uh he tends to be a more fiscally conservative person um so we have conversations about like the city budget and ways to deal with blighted houses and and you know real local politics sec the sexy work of local politics yeah. if you will um so we can we disagree on some of those things sometimes but like like we don't disagree on the value of a human. So anything, you know what I mean? So, so like leave space for disagreement because that is where democracy and community and, 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 and all of that builds because of that friction in a good way, because that friction forces us to look for better alternatives that might be outside of our brain. But if we can major on the fact that there is intrinsic value in every human being, I think we can have a lot bigger conversations. You know what I mean? Definitely. Absolutely. So my second question is less esoteric, less theoretical. My second question would be, if people want to get in touch with you or, um, you know, help engage in your work, how should people contact you? Oh, good. An easy one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had to throw you one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's super simple. Um, you can go to our website. It's just www.abo comix.com um and if you go to our contact section it's got all of our it's got our mailing address it's got our email address um it doesn't have my phone number because i received too many calls from prisons already i don't think i can take any more from that. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it's just it's abo comics on everything pretty much twitter uh instagram facebook um and i know i said get off social media so uh I still believe that, but if you want to find it <laughs> on social media, we are there. Um, and uh, yeah, feel free to get in contact for anything. If you have questions, uh, if you have concerns, if you want to come hang out in our office, if you want to volunteer, if you want to come see some artwork, um, I'm always happy to engage with the community. Perfect. And in terms of two other tangible things, um, are people able to connect with you in order if, if they would like to become a pen pal with, with people who are incarcerated? How should they do that? Yeah, uh, we actually have an entire pen pal um, portion of our website. Um, so again, if you go to the website and click pen pals, uh, we have bios up there. Um, and then we have a contact form as well. So you can fill out the little contact form, tell us who you want to write with. Um, or if you just want us to pair, pair you up with somebody who maybe hasn't been paired up yet, then we can do that as well. Very cool. Um, and another another good resource for pen pals as well, because I think we only have about 30 people listed on our website right now, um, is Black and Pink, which is just blackandpink.org. And I think they've got like thousands of people who are looking. Uh, okay. Awesome. Very cool. So I'll put all this info in the show notes and in the, the captions and everything and make sure that gets out there. And then my last question would be, um, this, so the anthology, is that purchasable by the general public? Is that something that they can find on the website? Uh, you know, what's that all about? Yes, uh, we have a store section on our website as well that has um, all five of our current anthologies along with um, a couple other books and zines. Um, we are also in the process of listing all of the artwork um, that we've ever received for sale. So that's an ongoing process right now. We probably got, I don't know, 50, 75 pieces of artwork up on there. And then we're going to keep adding um, constantly. So yeah, keep, if you want to subscribe to our newsletter as well, uh, we'll start sending out updates for new things for sale. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I, I hope that everybody who's listening goes and checks that out. I did um, like a couple of days ago and it's super awesome. It's super cool. Um, and then I know that a large portion of what you guys do also is then to give sort of that those proceeds back as much as possible to help out um, the incarcerated individuals too. So that's a really cool 
I like that you guys have kind of thought about it from start to finish and then back to start again um, and, and made it be this as holistic of a possible uh, as of a thing as possible. So Casper, uh, thank you so much for your time. I hope to remain friends with you and remain in contact. I think that what you're doing is so incredibly unique that there's no way that it could be construed as not insanely valuable to our world. Like <laughs> it's so cool. And it was a great time talking to you for, for what it's worth. You should do more podcasts because you're really good at talking. So I don't know if that's a thing you knew, but you you certainly overcame that like back left side introversion that you had in high school. I appreciate that so much. It has been, uh, it's been a really hard learning thing for me to learn how to talk to people, as you can see, as I stumble over my words. Um, so I super appreciate that. And it was wonderful to get to talk to you today too. And if you make it to the Bay Area, you know, let me know and I'll take you out to dinner. Yeah, well, we'll hit, we'll hit you up for sure. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Everybody who's watching, you're the bomb. Please remember that everybody's voice is valuable at the conversation, and we hope to see you back here next time. Have a good day. Casper, you have a good day as well. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.